<laughs> okay, we all need some work. Uh, that one is so important, though. We, we, we talk about how uh, easy it is to get confused with what really is the gospel. We talk about this as we prepare people for baptism. Um, baptism is really not a story about what you've done. It's a story about what Christ has done. It's not about um, we walked an aisle, we raised a hand, we prayed a prayer, but it's that Jesus died on the cross because all the aisle walking and praying the prayers in the world wouldn't make any difference if Jesus had not died on the cross and been raised to new life. All right, open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 5, as we continue our journey through Luke, the doctor's cure. <clears throat> if any of you are looking for work, um, they say a good place to work is Quicken Loans. You've probably seen the advertisements already. Quicken Loans has, for the last 13 years, made uh, one of the top 10 spots of Forbes magazines of uh, the best places to work in America. In fact, last year they hit the fifth spot, and that's the third time they made that spot. So uh, one of the greatest places to work in America is supposedly. And one of the reasons for their success is um, there was a business insider wrote a piece a number of years ago called uh, Creative Strategies uh, to rec Recruiting Good Hires. Creative Strategies to Recruiting Good Hires. And what they do, what Quicken does is look for people in what typical industries might figure is all the wrong places to look. For example, one day they sent out a bunch of Quicken employees to uh, places like McDonald's and uh, Popeyes and Sonics and uh, uh, retail outlets like Home Depot and so forth, and they just kind of hung around the edges and watched the employees at these places work, do their job. And then those that kind of stood out, they went up and they made a conversation with them and they offered them an, in, uh, an interview with Quicken Loans. And this is what they said. They said, too many companies focus on industry experience when they recruit. We can teach people about finance. We can't teach passion, urgency, and a willingness to go the extra mile. What we're going to talk about this morning is God's call on our lives, both as believers to come to Christ, as well as the call to become ambassadors for Jesus Christ, his spokesman in the world with the gospel. Now, the difference between Quicken Loans and God, how God works is that God doesn't look for any urgency, passion, or the underlying things that maybe other people don't see. He, he simply goes out and looks for people, period. And he looks for folks that don't have necessarily a pedigree, uh, don't have a uh, kind of a, a track record of success and achievement. He's not looking for people who have money. He's not looking for people who have all the things that the world considers valuable and important. Let me read a verse before we get into our Luke 5 passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning verse 26. Paul says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Now, note he says few of you. So it doesn't mean uh, that you can't come to Christ if you're rich. And Jesus said it's hard. Um, doesn't mean you can't come to Christ if you have a PhD. Um, but he's, few of you, that's, that's not the norm. Few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish 
in order to shame things the world, uh, in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. We could put people in for things here as well. God chose things or people despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And why? Why wouldn't God go looking for the cream of the crop like most companies do? As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. <clears throat> you may remember a verse from the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul was uh, sick and he begged God for healing. And God said, I'm not going to heal you. Because when you are weak, that's when I am strong. My grace is sufficient to carry you through the tough stuff. What really matters is not how strong you are, but how strong I am. And I hope as we read this passage this morning and kind of think through it, that what we get a new glimpse all over again of how utterly strong and powerful Christ is. And that's what makes the difference in everything in life, including talking with people about Jesus. Not how strong, how smart, how wise, insightful we are. Luke chapter 5, uh, first 11 verses this morning. Let me pray for us. Ask God for his help, and then we'll read together. If it were, Lord, that we needed to be some kind of person in order to become your child and then in order to become your servant, the collection of Christians in the world would be small indeed. And yet the opposite is true. There's no faith that boasts more followers than those of Christ. And it's interesting that the um, stream in which the gospel has flowed around the world for 2,000 years so often bypasses the powerful and the well-healed and the well-connected and flows instead through the refugee camps, through the places where cholera is stalking the land, through the garbage dumps, through the ordinary, everyday people that the world considers of no account. And you, by virtue of who you are rather than by virtue of who they are, make them of some account. I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning in ways that help us see that what God wants of us is not this, that, or the other character trait, not this, that, or the other um, background. He wants simply all of us for all of him. And that the least of us can grasp that God can be for us, the most of us, as well as for our neighbor who so desperately needs him. Bind the enemy this morning. May he be muzzled, um, thwarted from his purposes, and instead may yours advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> One day as Jesus 
was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon its owner. Now, this would be Peter. We know him as Peter. Simon was his Jewish name. Jesus renamed him Peter. I'll probably slip up and inadvertently call him Peter this morning. That's who we're talking about. Jesus asked Simon, uh, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, We worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in, uh, in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Now, you've got to realize these are not little skiffs. These are 20 to 30-foot long, solid, well-built boats on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, fishermen in Jesus' day were not exactly the upper crust of society. I'm not sure exactly how much education they might have had. They would have had some in the very early years in the synagogue, but typically um, those, those sons who had fathers who were in the trades would go and at a very early age start learning the trade of their dad. So maybe seven, eight, nine years old, they would be out in the boats learning to fish. And there have been all kinds of, been, there has been all kinds of research the last 20, 30 years uh, trying to portray guys like Peter, James, and John as sort of CEOs of fishing industries. It's really not what it was like. Um, you got a boat, you worked hard, um, you were crude. That's kind of the nature of the folks that you were around. You were patient, you learned to be patient if you're a fisherman. Amen, those of you who fish, you learn to be patient. Tough, tough guys, hard workers, not the kind of guys you would probably invite over for dinner guests, uh, not, again, well-educated. The scripture says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, uh, this, these very guys that we're reading about right now, um, they were before the Sanhedrin, and it says the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter, so Peter and John, two of the guys here that day, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. So it's not like they were, they were rabbinically trained and they had, knew all the ins and outs of, uh, of the Torah and the Old Testament. These were guys who had a smattering as Jewish boys of education, but not much more. They would fish differently than you would fish. I know some of you uh, folks are fisher people, fisher people. And uh, you go out and you cast, or maybe you're fly fishermen or, or spinning gear. Uh, that's not how they would fish. 
Uh, they, they used what was called a, a trammel net, T-R-A-M-M-E-L. It really was three nets in a line. And so um, it, would have a, it would go down um, vertically into the water, and the, the, the top rope would have cork on it for the buoy purposes. The bottom rope, way down deep into the sea, would have lead uh, anchors on it to hold it down. And so you have a coarse outer net here, a coarse outer net here, and in the middle, a real fine mesh net center. And then what, what they would do, the two ways they could do it, if they were in shallow water, the fishermen would actually get in the water out beyond the net, and they would, they would, make, you know, they would just move toward the net and scare the fish into the net. And what would happen is the fish would go into the outer nets very easily, and then they would get tangled up in the inner uh, mesh of this center net. But typically in deeper water, what they would do, do is set it out in deep water, and then the boat would go in between the shore and the net and, scare, again, scare the fish into, into, the, um, into the inner net. Now, <laughs> I just imagine Peter. Um, he's, he's kind enough to help the master get on a boat, get out away from the crowd so he can speak. You know, there's too many people around him. Maybe people are taller. He can't get to the people back in the crowd, can't hear him. But if you've ever been on the water in a boat, you know how sound carries across the water. You can have a boat half a mile away and people are talking in normal conversational tones and you can hear what they're saying. And so Jesus asked Peter to push this boat out from the shore and, and anchored it there and, he, and there he taught the people. When he's all done with his sermon... You would think as a speaker, now it's time to go home, send the people away, you go on, on and speak somewhere else. But he says, hey, let's go fishing. Now, Peter just spent the night before, I'm assuming awake all night, trying to catch fish, and they caught zip, zero, nada. And people tell me if nighttime's a good time to fish. Is that, is that right? I don't, I don't fish, but I understand nighttime's a good time. And, and Peter's like, I know this world. I, I know this career. I, I know this profession. We didn't have any success last night. We're sure not going to have any success tonight. Jesus is telling him, go out, let's go out and fish again. But he says, and it's interesting here, he says, master, because, I, because you asked me to, we're going to do this. Just so you know, it's not going to work, but because you tell me to do it, we're going to do it. So they go out, they drop the nets, and voila. And all of a sudden, they've got fish everywhere. They called James and John over. They've got, they got more fish than Peter's boat can handle. Soon more fish than James and John's boat can handle. In fact, the boats are going down. And apparently, while they're still in the boat, Peter gets on his knees before Jesus. And now, instead of calling him master, he calls him Lord. And he is wrecked. Terrified. We, we, we have to separate. We, we can't be together. You're of one caliber. I'm of another caliber. I, I'm, I'm a sinner. You're clearly something else altogether. And, and we, cannot, we cannot be together. We can't be in the same boat together. I am in trouble. Now, I want us to hang out here on this moment for a few minutes because it is so vital and so urgent. When you think about yourself, when you look reflectively in the mirror, how, how do you think about yourself? 
What are the main things that come to your mind that you say, this is who I am, this is how uh, I identify myself? Is it by virtue of the things that you've accomplished in life? Is it by virtue of the relationships you have, whether that's a marriage or a romance or children or grandchildren or extended family, friends? Is it about your appearance? I'm attractive, I'm handsome, I'm good looking. People notice that about me. Uh, is it about the people that you know and you have connections in high places or um, you know prominent people and you like to name drop? Is it about the career that you've, you've really done well in, you've rapidly advanced up the ladder and people have noticed both in your company and your family and your community that you're somebody to be reckoned with because of your success in your profession? Is it by virtue that you, uh, you identify yourself by virtue of, I'm a happy person, I, I'm, a, I'm a go-getter, maybe I'm a, I'm a mover and a shaker and I like to do this and get these kinds of things accomplished and you see yourselves in, yourself in terms of your, your skills and your, your personality and, and, and the uh, set of abilities that uh, is true of you. How do you think of yourself? It may be, I've... I've trotted out a lot of positives, it may be that you tend to look at yourself in a more negative light and you identify certain things that are true of you and say, this is me. Um, I, I'm, I lack resources, so I, I don't have enough money to do the things that I, I wanna do. I, I get discouraged easily, I'm prone to depression. Um, I've been betrayed by friends and, and if you are a person that tends to see the glass half uh, empty more than half full, you'll look at one or two friends that have betrayed in you and you kind of conclude, Every, everybody I've ever cared about has betrayed me. You understand what I'm saying? We're looking at different things in our lives and say, what rises to the surface? And I conclude, these are the most important things about who I am. If somebody sat me down and asked me, tell me about yourself, these would be the things that would come to mind first. When we think about how God views us, we have to start where Peter started. There's a, God knows everything about you. He knows your propensities. He knows your tendencies. He knows your successes. He knows your failures. Listen, he knows them better than you do. One of the things that we typically are careful about is keeping the secrets, the deep, dark secrets that we have, not only from other people, even though the scripture says, confess your sins one to another, but from God. It's like we play this little game with ourselves that we, we think God doesn't know what we know about us. And, and, and the day, when the day comes that the Holy Spirit breaks through our hearts to such a degree that we confess our sin before him, it's really not that big of a deal for him because he's like, well, I knew that all along. But we kind of pretend that he doesn't. We fool ourselves into thinking that we have some sort of you know, black you know, piece of cardboard over us that hides us from God and he doesn't see this and he doesn't know this about us. God says, I, I knew all along you were a sinner. I've just been waiting for you to figure it out as well. Peter got it right. It, it, it's interesting to me, if I was Peter though and all those fish are everywhere, I'd be going, this is awesome. I mean, the thing that I would think about is like, I am going to make a killing this week at the fish market. 
I, I mean, I might even be able to put another boat on with this. I might be able to take a week or two vacation. That's, those are the kinds of things I would think about. Peter saw firsthand that because of what happened, he was in the presence of someone who was, he didn't know who, who he was, but he was someone far different than he was. And he recognized his own propensity for sin. Do you do that in the presence of God? Do you recognize that you are so strikingly other from God than he is so strikingly other from you? That, that's the essential meaning of holiness, that God is other that you would fall to your face, get before God and say, you gotta get away from me, you don't understand, I'm a sinner. It's interesting, throughout the scripture, we see this again and again and again. When people have a, a, a kind of a face-to-face -face encounter with a living God like this, they're wrecked. They're like, I, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do next. Somehow, I, there has to be a... There has to be a, a separation between us. Last year when we were going through the book of Job, we saw this. Let me take you to Job 42, verse 6. If you remember the story, Job had all these bad things go wrong in his life. God had taken the gloves off and permitted Satan to uh, afflict him and do all kinds of bad things to him. And from Job's vantage point, his life was a train wreck. And he accused God of failing him. He accused God of not caring about him. He accused God of not loving him in sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And when, when God had left him have his say, God came and sat before Job and spoke to him in a very forthright manner. And when that speech was over, this is what Job said in 42, beginning of verse 5 instead of 6. I had only heard about you before but now I have seen you with my own eyes and I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I realize I'm a sinner and you're not. Same thing happened to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, beginning of verse one. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord he was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. It's an amazing picture. Can you imagine just seeing God in his heaven? It'd be like going to AMT theater and like, wow, sight and sound theater, wow. No, 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 no. When you come into the presence of the living God, it afflicts you personally. It's not just a, it's not just a feat for the eyes and the senses. And this is what, this is what I, Isaiah says in verse 5. Then I said, it's all over. It's all over. I'm doomed. Why? For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people with filthy lips. And yet I've seen the king, the Lord of the heaven's armies. I am undone because this is who I am. Listen, when I ask you how do you see yourself, you and I have the propensities to see ourselves in ways that are inaccurate. It may be that we see ourselves better than we actually are. It may be that we see ourselves worse than we actually are. 
but we become masters of kidding ourselves about who we really are, in part because we have an enemy who is in, determined to reinforce our foolishness about who we actually are. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. I'm quoting from the NIV. Let me continue. They are, an they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. In other words, there is a spiritual uh, opponent who confirms in an unbeliever's life that the gospel is irrelevant, doesn't mean anything, they shouldn't pay any attention to them, and it also blinds them to their own condition like Peter came to realize in that boat that day, like Isaiah came to realize when he's looking to heaven that day, like Job came to realize when he was sitting in front of God that day. That ultimately, that what Satan desperately does not want to teach us about ourselves, let us know about ourselves, let us conclude about ourselves, is that we are first and foremost, our problem before a holy God is that we are sinners. Not that we're discouraged, not that we can't get a job, not that I can't get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not that I don't have enough money. The fundamental flaw that we have before God that will condemn us is that we are sinners. In 2015, David Brooks wrote a book entitled Road to Character. David Brooks, is a, maybe know as a columnist, a syndicated columnist for the New York Times. He's a commentator in NPR and other broadcasts as well. Now, Brooks is not a Christian. Um, he's Jewish, but he's a cultural Jew. doesn't really buy into the whole religious piece. But the contention of the book is that character building is essential for Americans and that we have come to believe things that undermine character building in America. Now, by and large, many of the observers of, cult, of American culture would say that my era, when I was growing up as a teenager, the era of the 1960s, was the era in which the moral underpinnings of America were fractured and essentially collapsed. Brooks makes the argument in his book, no, that happened a few years before. It actually happened in the 1940s during the World War II era when a lot of books were being, bestsellers were being written and some movies were being made as well that were basically saying that the notion of human sinfulness was outdated and that we desperately as Americans needed to embrace the idea that we're really wonderful, that we're really wonderful. Now, these comments are not from his book. This is part of an interview that Brooks did for his book, and he made these comments. When you lose awareness of sin and start thinking, again, this guy does, he doesn't have a religious framework in mind. He's thinking about character building. When you lose the awareness of sin and start thinking that deep down human beings are pretty wonderful, you lose the struggle of character building. Building character is not like being better than someone else at a career. It's conquering your own weakness. But you won't make that effort if you lose a sense of what your weakness is and where it comes from. He continues, we've encouraged generations to think highly of themselves. In 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? Back then, 1950, 12% said yes. Are you a very important person? 
Gallup asked the same question in 2005, and 80% said yes. Are you a very important person? Now, this, this is after 30 years of the self-esteem movement in our public school system. He says there are surveys called the narcissism test that ask whether respondents agree with statements like, I like to be the center of attention because I'm so extraordinary, or somebody should write a biography about me. Brooks says the median narcissism score has gone up 30% in 20 years. Now, here's the issue. If we don't get the diagnosis right, we don't take the right medicine. Some of you know I've been uh, dealing with some physical stuff for the last two months, and I've got a diagnosis, and I'm on medicine for it, but neither my doctor, my family doctor, nor I am convinced that the specialists have the right diagnosis yet. For The main reason is that there is medication that I have taken in the early stages of this that worked. But every medical person says it doesn't work for what your diagnosis is. That medicine doesn't work. So by and large, the human condition is um, deeply committed to discovering a lot of wrong diagnoses about what the human condition is. And so we spend a lot of time pursuing this when this is not the problem. We spend a lot of time pursuing this when this, we start with the assumption, again, let's, let's use finances. I lack money, and so here's the solution. I lack confidence. Here's the solution. I lack uh, a romantic partner, so here's the solution. And those things, those things might all be true, but it's not the central problem of humanity. The central problem of humanity is that I am a broken man, just like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people like you of unclean lips. And the Lord of heaven and earth is a holy God who cannot... Habakkuk says, I think Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. I'm an evil man. You're an evil man, an evil woman, an evil boy, evil girl, and nothing in society will convince you of that. It has to be the work of God in your life to say you have a problem far more fundamental than you realize. And tragically, what we have been telling our young people for too many years is the greatest thing I can tell you is how extravagant and glorious and extraordinary you are. Not so. We set our young people up for failure to understand the gospel if we tell them that. Because nobody needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody needs the gospel except sinners. Depressed people don't need the gospel. Poor people don't need the gospel. People who don't have a great skill set don't need the gospel. People who are out of work don't need the gospel. People who are divorced don't need the gospel. People who just broke up with their girlfriend last week don't need the gospel. Sinners need the gospel. It's the main thing about us. And the glorious thing about that is when we embrace that, this is who we are, that's when the real hope comes to the fore. Because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We listen to Peter crying out before Jesus and we want to relieve him of this. We want to relieve him of this burden. Oh no, Peter, you're not that bad. Yes, you are. 
What's really interesting is Peter's instinct, though, is all wrong. His instinct is all wrong, and, and ours may well be as well. Instinct is to get away, get away from the one who is sinless, get away from the one who is holy. And yet the picture in Scripture is, no, that's the one to run to. That's the only place for sinners to go. Take you back to Isaiah again. Finish up a couple of verses. We were reading about how Isaiah is like, oh, I'm, uh, woe is me. I, I, I am so, so in trouble. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. All right. No contribution in Isaiah's part. He brings this all, uh, coal and he touches my lips with it and he says, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed. Your sins are forgiven. This is one of the greatest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. I love it. There's nothing Isaiah did to cure his problem of being a man of unclean lips and living among people of unclean lips. That's God's doing. He sends an angel. Here's a, take a hot coal from the altar. And you take that to Isaiah and you touch his lips and you cleanse him. You make him clean. You make him pure. You make him holy. Sinner's instinct is to run from Jesus and, and Jesus came to say, no, I want to change your instinct so that you run to me. I'm here to deliver. You can't deliver yourself. I'm here for you. Now, Jesus is telling Peter, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. He doesn't go into great detail to try to relieve Peter of his burden. He just basically gives him a job to do, which essentially does that. It's like, I know you're a sinner. I, I'm okay with that. I'm here to fix that. And oh, by the way, I'm not only calling you to myself, I'm calling you to serve me and carry out the work that I'm starting here on earth. And so he says here at the end. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. From now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And it says that they all left their nets. They all left their boats. Apparently, they didn't sell them. We see later pictures in the gospel where Peter and James and John are out fishing again. But they put that aside. And for this season, they, three and a half years, they walked beside Jesus, they preached with him, they cast out demons, they healed the people, and so forth. And this is not only true of the 12 disciples that Jesus called, this is true of every one of you and me for a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is that we have been commissioned, we have been called, we have been set apart to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. And one of the great tragedies of our modern American church is that um, too often, people like you look at people like me and say, that's your job. Mm. That's our job. Every one of us has been called. Because we have been delivered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been called to be at the ready. I like what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Always be ready. It may not be that you share the gospel more than once a year. It may not be more than once a month. It may be once every five years. Let's not get hung up at how often. It's just, we're always on call. We're always available. We're always on duty. 
And some of you say, well, I don't really know what to say to somebody about Jesus. Listen, if you have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got something to say. I love what Greg Steyer um, of a ministry called Dare to Share um, works with young people. Love what he says. Look, worry less about how to present the gospel and more about knowing the gospel. If you know the gospel, you'll find ways to share it custom to the occasion. It's far more important that you grasp the gospel and then you give pieces of it out as opportunity avails itself. All of our calls. Just as a plug, this fall, uh, mid-October, we're going to have a seminar here on a weekend, apologetic seminar, to help you um, get better equipped to defend your faith, uh, to speak to people about Jesus. Let me give you four suggestions as we close about how, you know, we know how Peter and James and John went about fishing for people. What's it look like for us? One of the things I'm convinced about um, in our culture is that we need to do a lot better job about the pre-evangelism stuff than actually sharing the gospel. And that begins with prayer. We start talking to God about people before we start talking to people about God. Who is it that you care about, that God's laying on your heart, that needs Christ? Start praying about them. Think back to this story in the text we read. Simon and James and John out in the boats, they didn't have any luck the night before. So obviously the fish aren't there. Obviously the fish aren't running. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. All of a sudden they're fish. You see, it didn't depend on the skill of the fishermen. It depended on the skill of the great fishermen. It didn't depend on the ability of a couple of guys who've been fishing with their dads for maybe 15 years, but it depended on the uh, ability of the guy who made the fish. Talking to people, uh, uh, talking to God about people before we talk to people about God. I'm convinced this is the, the, the key missing component in so much of our evangelism. Are we turning people over to God in prayer? Secondly, uh, just inviting people, inviting people to church. We have an Easter service next month. Great opportunity for people to hear a straightforward gospel at Sunday morning and to sing songs about the uh, work of Christ and the cross and resurrection. Invite them to church. Invite them to other Christian activities. Ah, invite them to your house. Just invite them to play cards. Invite them to hang out. Uh, we've shared many times that statistically, usually within three years, people come to Christ within three years, they've purged their, their friendships of all non-Christian non-Christian friends. Big mistake. Big mistake. Maintain those relationships. Say, well, they do some things I don't want to do now that I'm Christian. Um, take chances. And maybe you can't do everything that they're doing, but don't cut them off. You're like, well, I don't want to fall. You know, I don't want them to lead me astray. Hey, how about if you lead them astray? Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world, right? So the Holy Spirit's power in you can overshadow that and bring to uh, light what is, what is dark. It's hanging out with people. I'm convinced these three things are even more important than us actually articulating the gospel because those kinds of things take place. We're praying, we're inviting people, we're hanging out with them, we're spending time with them. The opportunities to actually talk about Jesus significantly increase, I believe. All of us called, this, this to me is the main thing that we need to remember. All of us called 
It's not just the prophet, priest, king. It's not just the apostles. It's not just the disciples. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the evangelists called to speak to people about Jesus. If you love what Christ has done for you, let's pass it on. Let's pass it on for the glory of God and for the good of lost people. Father, thank you for the call to come fish. I know I don't feel confident, competent. I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters don't as well. Would you uh, so infect us with a love for the gospel that we cannot not talk to people about Jesus? Guard us against feeling like we have to put some sort of notch in our spiritual gun that, uh, that we talk to people about Jesus in hopes that we get some sort of credit for it. May, may our desire be uh, solely for your glory and for their good. And that we would say, um, with the servants of Christ, we are but humble servants. We've only done our duty. And that we would have the privilege of seeing around um, the throne on that last day some people that we had a hand in seeing them drawn out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We pray in Christ's name.